Thanks for tuning in to the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikraman Sharmani. The podcast was started in early 2020 to share some of the ideas from his most recent book, Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in the Age of Experts in Artificial Intelligence, which is available for purchase via Amazon, bookshop.org, and most other retailers. This episode is the audio portion of a webinar hosted by Dr. Mancharamani on November 13th with Rebecca Listener, an assistant professor at the U.S. Naval War College and the co-author with Mira Rapp Hopper of An Open World. The video replay of the discussion is available at www.mancharamani.com. Um. Okay, so thanks everyone for taking the time to join us this morning. I know it's a little bit earlier for those of you in the middle of the country and on the uh, West Coast, uh, and, I, and I suspect some of you will be watching it as a replay. Uh, so uh, if you have questions after the fact, feel free to send them to me. But uh, for those of you that are live, thank you for taking the time to tune in. I am absolutely thrilled this morning to have with me uh, Rebecca Listener. Rebecca is a professor at the U.S. Naval War College uh, and just wrote a really interesting book called An Open World, which she co-authored with uh, Mira Rapp Hooper. Um, Mira is not joining us today, but Rebecca is, and uh, we'll get into the topics of the book, but also uh, some a little a little bit more about her background and how she got to where she is. Um, so I think all of us will enjoy some of that. Before we begin, however, um, we're gonna just do the traditional advertising uh, that takes place here uh, for 1995. No, there's there's no cost. <laughs> there are replays available. So last week, or sorry, excuse me, the week before, we had Roger Martin uh, talking about democratic capitalism. Really, the risks that come from inequality and whether the system needs to be rethought, whether efficiency should be the real objective, or whether resilience and sort of inclusion should be a higher priority. Uh, so uh, Professor Martin was the former dean of the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, uh, number one management thinker in the world, according to Thinkers 50, and a real uh, just gentleman of a person. Uh, it was a really pleasant conversation. I think many of you have already commented you've enjoyed the replays. Those that haven't, I think you, you will enjoy it. Um, before that, we had uh, Dr. David Katz, uh, and that replay is available. Uh, Dr. Katz wrote the book with Mark Bittman of, called How to Eat, uh, which, of course, uh, for those of you that heard that conversation, you know that, like, you know, my kids really get a kick out of the fact that I was reading a book, How to Eat. They're like, you don't know yet, Dad? You, you've, been, you've been around for a while. You should know how to eat. Uh, but nonetheless, a fabulous and very interesting conversation about uh, public health, nutrition, and some of the dynamics thereof. Uh, before that, we had Susan Helms. Uh, that replay is available. Um, Susan Helms was a retired three-star, is a retired three-star Air Force general who spent 211 days in outer space, uh, including um, five missions to the, uh, five shuttle missions, a bunch of time at the International Space Station, um, and, and really a fascinating personality, actually, in terms of how to think about human travel off this planet um, and, and beyond. And then uh, we began this fall series with Annie Duke. Um, Annie is the professional, former professional poker player uh, who thinks probabilistically uh, and wrote this recent book, How to Decide. Uh, I was a fan of her prior book, uh, Thinking and Bets, and have known her for a while. So uh, that was a really interesting conversation as well. That replay is also available. Um, and then, of course, uh, we began with, uh, Rak or we had Rakesh Karana. Sorry, that's in the wrong order. Rakesh, uh, former dean of Harvard College, sorry, not former, current dean of Harvard College, former professor at the business school. Uh, we talked about uh, higher education in a time of COVID uh, and some of the dynamics relating to liberal arts education in a time of technological advancement. Um, and that replay again is also available. That's really all just the fall series. The spring series uh, is all on my website as well. Um, and of course, here is the advertisement uh, that needs to, we need to take our 10 seconds to advertise uh, my book. The reason I started this webinar series uh, to help uh, keep awareness during this pandemic of the book I had written this summer called Think for Yourself. Um, so with that said and that backdrop, uh, let me welcome Rebecca. Rebecca, thanks for taking the time to join me. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, Rebecca, let's begin with your bio. Um, I gave a very brief bio of, uh, of your background as a academic, but you know, you've, uh, you've studied a lot of different places. You've done some fellowships. Uh, uh, maybe describe your own background in your own terms. Sure. Well, 
As you mentioned, uh, I am now an assistant professor at the U.S. Naval War College, although I should be very clear that I'm speaking exclusively in my personal capacity today. And so nothing I say reflects the views of the War College, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government whatsoever. Um, but I landed at the War College after sort of pursuing a career that has spanned both the policy realm and the academic realm. I did my undergraduate studies at Harvard, uh, spent some time thereafter at the Council on Foreign Relations, then went on to pursue a PhD in government at Georgetown. During the time that I was in graduate school, I also did some policy work during the Obama administration, first at the US mission to NATO, and then later at the Department of Energy. Uh, having then finished my PhD, I went on to do a number of fellowships that allowed me to work on the book that we're talking about today and another book that I also have in the hopper about the relationship between military intervention and American grand strategy over the past 70 years. So I was able to do some of that research with support from Yale University, from the Council on Foreign Relations, from the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and then in the last election cycle, I provided some foreign policy advice to the Hillary Clinton campaign and the sort of pre-election transition team uh, at that time. So Great. it's really been a, sort of a, a dual track career in a way, doing a lot of academic research and scholarship at the same time as really trying to shape the foreign policy conversation as it's happening in DC and, um, and, and farther. So that's, that's sort of a, a thumbnail sketch of my background, but happy, of course, to go into any. Well, you know, detail. what's really interesting, Rebecca, and I want to sort of start with this point, um, you know, a lot of academics, I, I, when I was getting my PhD, when I studied at Yale myself, there's this focus and emphasis on being disciplinarily bound, sort of getting narrow and deep. Grand strategy and thinking holistically, as you've done in your book, and obviously you do in some of your other activities, requires you to be broad as well. How, do you, how did you come to grand strategy? How did you come to think broadly uh, rather than narrow and deeply? I'm not suggesting you're not doing deeply thinking, but but you know what I mean. There's a balancing act here, and the academic environment nudges you towards specialization, narrow and deep. And grand strategy, I think, is a pushback against that. Absolutely. I think the reason why I have wanted to focus on these big, important questions of grand strategy is precisely because I am unsatisfied by the disciplinary and subdisciplinary silos that we are so often pushed into as academics. And for me, I think this actually goes back to my undergraduate studies at Harvard, where I studied social studies, yep. which might sound like something that you do in the fourth grade, but is in fact an interdisciplinary social sciences concentration. And yep. I think that reflected the inclination I had at that time that I didn't want to hyper specialize in only one lens of viewing the world. I wanted to have multiple lenses at my disposal. And so although I did ultimately become a political scientist, I've always found it to be incredibly rich to engage with historians. And a lot of what I did at Yale was working closely with the historians there like John Gaddis and Paul Kennedy, who have really been pioneers in the study of grand strategy but also continuing to engage with the people who get their hands dirty in the real world and who don't think much of elegant theories if they can't actually help with concrete decisions that have to be made, um, including on some of the most important questions of our time. So that's basically how I think of it. You know, of course you do sort of have to pick a team in academia uh, and, I, and I did that. But even now being at the War College, it's, I'm in an interdisciplinary department. Uh, I do work for the US Navy. Uh, and so this has been a perch for me that has allowed me to continue to think holistically, think broadly and not become overly captured by just one way of thinking about or, or trying to explain the world. Yeah. Oh, look, I obviously agree. Uh, that's uh, triangulating perspectives and sort of being a generalist is something I've always thought is a worthwhile. You know, my undergraduate at Yale was in ethics, politics, and economics, which was the closest thing to sort of social studies right. that we had, which was multidisciplinary, uh, but you know, a lot of pressure to pick a team, so to say. I think that fits yes. it nicely. So let's turn to the book. Why? Why'd you write the book? Uh, why now? Um, why with Mira, uh, sort of what happened? Give us a little bit of the background behind uh, the origins and, and sort of the development of the book. Sure, so this book, An Open World, really makes the case that we need to rethink American foreign policy 
before it is too late. And Mira and I started this book in the immediate wake of the 2016 election, when it was already clear to us that Donald Trump himself was more an avatar than an architect of the tectonic, domestic, and international changes that were reshaping the very context in which American foreign policy is made and in which it is implemented. And we really set out to push back against two pieces of conventional wisdom. The first was the idea that Donald Trump himself was exclusively responsible for the collapse of American global influence and the set of structures, the architecture of international cooperation that's often referred to as the liberal international order. And second, to push back against the idea that the United States could somehow revert to foreign policy business as usual once Donald Trump left office. And now we know that that is going to be happening next year. So this was a really multi-year project by Mira and I to map the trends, both foreign and domestic, that were going to determine the future course of American foreign policy and to answer the question of, of what comes next, what comes next for the day after Trump, a day that is now actually in view. Yep. Well, it's interesting. That's, that's the title of your last chapter. For those that haven't read the book, uh, I, I highly recommend it. The last chapter literally is a policy for the day after. Uh, so... Um, before we go there, uh, Rebecca, talk to me a little bit more about uh, these trends. I've, in my public speaking, I say, and I focus predominantly on geoeconomics rather than geopolitics, but it, but obviously intermingles. Mm -hmm. I like to, especially given this this time of, of COVID, I say the world had all these pre-existing conditions, <laughs> uh, right. and sort of uh, these pre-existing conditions of rising inequality, the populism, nationalism, protectionism. Those pressures were in effect well before. And yeah. to some extent, you might argue Trump was a symptom rather than a cause of some of the disruption. Uh, and if it wasn't Trump, it would have been someone else. Uh, and in fact, these are you know tectonic sort of slow moving uh, dynamics. But talk to me about what you viewed as those primary drivers that led to the disruptive uh, feeling we have. So pre-existing conditions is exactly the right way to put it and particularly apt in this age, because I think as we've lived through the upheaval of the Trump presidency, as we've lived through the upheaval of COVID, you know, there's really a tendency to say that the, the reason that we face a global and a U.S. foreign policy crisis right now is because of those two factors. But precisely as you say, many of the forces that are responsible for this moment of destruction actually predated both Trump and COVID, and crucially will be with us even after Trump is no longer in office and COVID is no longer, uh, you know, primary day-to-day -day concern. So to start, I guess, with the international trends, the top line argument there is really that American primacy or America's condition as the world's uncontested superpower was already waning before COVID. And the reason for that is West to East power shifts and rapid technological change that were fueling China's rise and also undermining a US-led international system that simply no longer reflected the global distribution of power. So looking to China specifically, as I'm sure you know, China now has the world's largest economy by some measures, and its military power has expanded in parallel. And although this meteoric growth occurred within a US-led international order, Beijing now wants to revise that set of rules, laws, institutions, and norms, or at least parts of it, to better reflect its own power and preferences. And we see this in many different domains of international life, from its actions in the South China Sea to its actions at the WTO. And yeah. this is happening at a time when that international order, that existing set of rules and laws and norms and institutions, is becoming increasingly outmoded on account of rapid technological change which means that we need to develop new forms of international governance for everything from cyberspace, where there are no meaningful global rules, the internet, where there are no protections for your data when you use a foreign-owned app like TikTok, um, and AI and automation, where we have no guardrails for the integration of AI, including in weapon systems for our military. So 
On a global scale, I would say these two trends actually intersect in a really important way because technology itself is becoming a central theater of US-China rivalry, of this condition that's often referred to as great power competition. As China now seeks to write global rules that protect its domestic model of techno-authoritarianism and also that advance its commercial interests globally, and the United States needs to mount an effective strategic response. And thus far, that strategic response has not been forthcoming. Yeah. And a crucial reason why that strategic response has not been forthcoming is because of the acute domestic dysfunction that is hobbling the United States and that is really undermining the very basis of American power. So I'm happy to yeah. talk more about that, but I know you have many thoughts on the geopolitical and technological yeah. dimensions, and I'd love to hear those too. Yeah, Rebecca, so look, so many things you just raised there that I'd love to tap into and sort of go uh, a little bit deeper on. First, um, and this is something I've received a couple of text questions from folks about this, uh, about the US-China dynamic and sort of the liberal international order. And you know, I'm going to summarize it. So apologies to those that are listening that I'm not doing your question justice. If I don't, please text again or send a clarification. But I think that the tone that I'm seeing in these questions, Rebecca, is was America a sucker? Did we subsidize the development of the Chinese system? Did we play by these international rules? Did we look the other way thinking economic progress would result in political reform? Did we, in keeping free lanes of communication and sort of the open seas, subsidize their trade policy by giving, we paid for the protection and support of open uh, travel and, and free navigation. They benefited more than we did. We bore the cost, they got the benefit. So were we just wrong in our assumption that economic progress would result in political reform? So that's a heavy sort of different, differentiated question in a lot of ways. And then we can come back to the U.S. and other things. But let, let me let you reflect on that question first. So I would, I would pull it apart a bit because yeah. so I agree in so far as one of the central assumptions of American foreign policy since the end of the Cold War has been this idea, what we call in the book, liberal universalism. The idea that liberal markets, liberal politics could spread inexorably, that we had reached the end of history as Frank Fukuyama memorably put it, and that on the basis of America's overwhelming power in the post-Cold War period, that the United States could really spread liberalism to all corners of the globe. And of course that included China. There was this so-called convergence wager, the idea that by engaging with many of the structures of the liberal international order, by engaging in the international trading order, China itself would politically liberalize, that the internal character of its regime, that the CCP would itself change. And I think a similar wager applied to Russia, although it has followed a different trajectory over time. But what we see today is that those assumptions have not borne out. We today have a China that has already risen, that exists within the international order today, and that has not itself liberalized politically, and in many ways its economic liberalization is stalled as well. So American strategists now have to reckon with the reality that the CCP is an authoritarian regime. It seems to be a strong one, at least it's pioneering new ways to surveil and control its population uh, that seem to be effective thus far. And the fact is that as regrettable as this circumstance is, there is really not much that the United States can do to change the internal character of China until the Chinese people decide they want to live in a different kind of system. So I don't think it was wrong to try to bring China into the fold, but we do need to be clear-eyed that that project has failed in some really important ways. And we need to build a strategy that hedges against the likelihood that China will remain authoritarian for the foreseeable future, and that it will pursue interests that are contrary to many of the United States interests and those of our allies and partners. Now, at the same time, it is the fact that China is tremendously powerful, and there are many areas of international life and transnational challenges where we actually can't make substantial progress in the absence of U.S.-China cooperation. So what we will see over the coming decades is a sort of awkward dance where the U.S. is competing with China on many issues. Those will be security issues like 
the persistence of American alliances and presence in the Indo in the Indo Pacific. There'll be commercial issues like who's going to build 5G uh, digital networks all around the world. Uh, but there will also be and also ideological issues like human rights and how that will proceed and who's going to govern and write the rules for international organizations in the 21st century. But all of that will exist alongside a recognition that if we are to make substantial progress on climate change, if we are to build a global health governance structure that is robust to future pandemics, these are things that the US and China really have to align on and even cooperate on it if they are to succeed. So I would say that is, is where we sit today. Now, just to address one of your, your questions specifically, I mean, I don't think that that makes the US a sucker. And indeed, many of the uh, actions that you described, for example, the, the quest to keep the global commons open and accessible, I mean, that's a core tenant of an openness strategy. That is a key feature of an open world. And the fact is that just because there are other countries that benefit from economic interdependence doesn't make it bad for us. The reason why the United States does things like try to keep international waterways open and accessible to include international waterways like the South China Sea is precisely because so much of global trade flows through those areas and the United States benefits and our allies and partners benefit and the American people and American businesses benefit from that type of beneficial international commerce. So that is not a favor that we're doing for anything else. It is actually fundamental to American interests. Sure. So there are a crazy number of China related topics we can go down the path of, Rebecca. Let's, uh, Let's touch on the other topic you raised uh, in your prior answer here, which was domestic strength, uh, the mm -hmm. United States. I love it when I get to talk with foreign policy professionals and, and people who are thinking about it and that are also thinking about domestic because I do think they're intermingled. I think if you're thinking grand strategy, you need a strong, robust domestic economy. You need in investments in innovation, research and development. You need to have that social sense of purpose, a commonality, a, a sense of communitarian go forward. We're on the same team uh, sort of dynamic. Um, you know, Robert Putnam's new book, The Upswing, talks about the, the sort of late 1800s I culture turning into the 1900 to 1960 we culture, mm -hmm. and then the 1960s to the present sort of I culture and sort of suggesting actually another community oriented surge is probably what's needed to sort of bring cohesiveness here at home, which will give us strength abroad. Um, so talk a little bit about sort of your thinking around domestic uh, dynamics and how they come into play. Asking specifically from the perspective of foreign affairs, but you know the Chinese much must love the sort of domestic instability we see. They see here in the United States. The Russians must love this sort of saying, "Hey, look at them! They can't get their act together." We are demonstrating that actually democracy. Uh, fortunately, I think we're de demonstrating democracy, although messy, can work. Um, but. I think they've enjoyed sort of watching from the sidelines and saying, look, you know, there's another model. The Chinese system's pretty good too. Um, but anyway, I'd love you to reflect on some of those thoughts. So it's such an important question. And, you know, it might not seem that way as we're in the midst of an election year and now a presidential transition, but actually to think about foreign policy in those terms is somewhat revolutionary. I mean, for yeah. so long, so much of international relations theory and even our conversations about grand strategy has sort of put the, the messiness of domestic politics within a black box and sort of wished it away, you know, thinking instead about global distributions of power, maybe technology and economics and that kind of thing. But what has become so, so clear is that our domestic dysfunction here in the United States is actually undermining our capacity to act on the international stage. Because as much as it's true that China has risen and it's now a formidable global power, the fact is that the United States remains tremendously powerful. We still have the world's first or second largest economy, depending on how you measure it. 
the, the US dollar is still the dominant global reserve currency and we have unrivaled centrality in global financial networks. The US military is still the only military in the world capable of global power projection. We still have this tremendous domestic innovation base, university system, international alliances. So the United States has so many advantages to bring to bear in shaping 21st century geopolitics, if only we can marshal and muster them towards defined ends. So there are sort of two central divisions that we call out in the book as hampering the United States capacity to bring those advantages to bear. And the first one, which feels so salient today is partisan polarization or the way in which Democrats and Republicans have increasingly sorted into two opposing blocks. And we see this throughout American political life. We see this in the way that Congress often votes along party lines and centrist or swing legislators have all but disappeared. We see this in the election results this year where the country itself is almost 50-50 divided in terms of its partisan preferences. We see this in the media ecosystem and the way in which Democrats and Republicans actually consume two very different news streams, information streams and sources of facts, whether on Fox News and MSNBC or whether on social media. So the implications of that are grave for many elements of American governance. And we've seen it you know, in COVID so far in the way in which even the wearing of life-saving masks has itself become politicized. But it is really grievous when it is, comes to foreign policy, because the fact of a polarized United States makes it harder for the United States to develop and execute long-term strategy. It results in wild swings when the White House changes hands between Democrats and Republicans and Democrats and Republicans. It therefore undermines our credibility for both allies and adversaries as a reliable partner or counterparty in negotiations. And it allows uh, political leaders to make irresponsible choices without fear of recourse from their loyal domestic bases. It also makes manifest to foreign adversaries those fissures within the American polity that they can then be exploited, for example, through foreign political interference or election meddling, while making it much more difficult for the United States to effectively respond. So partisan polarization is a really problematic factor and not one that is new and also not one that is likely to go away anytime soon. But there's one more division that's worth highlighting, and that's the one between the federal government and its tech sector over in Silicon Valley and in Boston and in many other places as well. Because the tech sector and the federal government used to be fairly closely coupled. And certainly that was the story in the immediate post-World War II period and for much of the Cold War, especially as the United States government was spending somewhere on the order, at least in the 1970s, of 2% of GDP on R&D and basic science. But in the years since the Cold War ended, that number has diminished pretty dramatically, gone way down. And it now stands somewhere around 0.7% of GDP, which has in many ways left our tech sector to pursue their own interests and profits, many of which exist overseas. And that decoupling or dealignment of the tech sector with the federal government has made it much harder for the United States to leverage its domestic innovation capacity for national purposes, and also has created these barriers between the public and the private sector that make it much harder for the federal government not only to regulate the tech sector, but also to adopt commercial technologies that could, could benefit it, including the national security space, where our procurement processes and our talent within the federal government just isn't suited to working with agile startups. So again, together, what these amount to are chronic domestic divisions that result in the United States operating well below its own capacity on the international stage, particularly at a time when reinvigorated and strong American leadership is so sorely needed. Yeah. So Rebecca, do you think, do you think racial tensions come into play there? How would, you, how would you put the sort of George Floyd phenomenon into that domestic sense? Of, I don't know if it's polarization. It sort of comes in in so many different ways. Uh, but there's a feeling that there's two teams here. It's sort of, or more teams, internal. Uh, how do you go play another team? On, you know, how do you play the away game if your, your, your own home team is divided and, you know, there's multiple teams here? So I'm curious if you can comment on sort of the racial tensions that, that sort of 
reared their ugly head this this summer and some of the injustices that they may be reflecting? Well, they are incredibly important. There is no question. And I think that the what we know, at least of the election results so far, is that you know there isn't a one to one correlation between racial identity and partisan identity. So this is definitely a different type of fissure that exists within the American polity. And we know that Russia has sought to take advantage of it. We know that some of the Russian disinformation campaigns have actually focused on exploiting racial tensions as a means of driving Americans farther apart from each other. So that is absolutely not to deny the legitimacy and the importance of these claims. It's actually to underline how crucial it is that they be taken seriously so that this does not remain a fault line that foreign adversaries can take advantage of and that really undermines America's claim to being a vital and robust democracy on the international stage. Because, you know, so much of our of our international presence relies on the power of our example at home. And so it really behooves the United States and it behooves every American to live our values at home so that we can also represent them and advance them on an international basis. Yeah, no, look, I, I agree. It's a domestic strength does seem to be a core pillar holistically, cohesively, um, you know, et cetera. Um, any sense as to how the polarization might dissipate? I mean, sort of, it's sort of a, a tough thing. I've asked a couple of elected representatives about these, these dynamics, you know, and the, the range of sort of answers has been in and of itself stunning to me, right? One representative uh, from Connecticut uh, said, listen, Vikram, it's all gerrymandering. You know, we've got of the 400 and some odd seats in the house, most of them are actually not contested across parties are contested at the primary level. And then when you show up for the election, you got to push yourself further, further to get the primary when once you get the primary, when you win the seat um, and the same thing happens over here. And so we get right and left pushing further out. The result is only a few seats are contested. And then what do you expect from us when we show up in, in Congress? We have to be loyal to those who put us here and we're far apart. Um, that's one explanation of to how we got here. When I ask, how do we get out of here? <laughs> that's harder. That's a tougher one. Um, you know, especially even the social and socioeconomic sorting that's happened, right? I mean, even again, I've been reading a lot of Robert Putnam stuff recently, but you know, the the marriages are among similar political views now, not just socioeconomic similarity, but similar political views. You used to have some more diversity, more mingling. People saw other people's perspectives. Mm -hmm. um, it, there's more of this filtering, this bubble dynamic, if you will. So a tough question, I realize, but how do we get out of it? <laughs> Give me some sense as to how we get out of this mess. How I wish that I had a silver bullet answer for you. I, you know, the, the problem is, you know, in sort of getting back to where we started, sort of talking a bit about academia and social science, the fact is that political scientists don't even agree on what causes partisan polarization in the first place. What we know is that the strongest correlate of partisan polarization is economic inequality, that it tends to be that as economic inequality goes up, polarization goes up as well. Now, polarization also makes it much harder to enact the kind of, kind of redistributive policies that would be required to address that inequality in the first place. So in that sense, it is something of a vicious cycle. So in the absence of having defined a clear cause, it's hard to define a clear solution. Now, I will say there are some things that might help. For example, one idea that we talk about in the book is the idea of you know, trying to recapture the spirit of national service and unity that existed after World War II. And you know, we're, everyone is hoping there won't be any kind of cataclysmic war in that model ever again, but perhaps a certain national service obligation would be one way to bring Americans from all different aspects of life and different socioeconomic positions and political views together to work on behalf of America, maybe for a year before college, after college, whatever it might be, sort of one way to begin to break down those divides. But precisely as you said, a lot of this is structural and it's gonna require structural solutions, uh, which are made more difficult by polarization. I mean, if you think about um, the 
the sort of major democratic remedies that you might have expected if Democrats had swept the House, the Senate, and the presidency. I mean, that sort of foreshadows the, the type of reform that might have been possible, for example, to, to take on gerrymandering or you know, to reform the electoral college, uh, or even to change the character possibly of the Supreme Court. But today we don't have the political conditions that would support those kind of structural changes. And so in many ways, I, I don't expect uh, to see them anytime soon. So in light of all of that, in light of the difficulty of actually solving the root causes or even identifying them of polarization, I think the task for us as foreign policy strategists is to try to find ways to insulate foreign policy from partisan polarization by yeah. trying to identify those areas of consensus where they do still exist and try to build upon them. For example, you know, many Americans still believe that the United States can and should be a global leader, although they don't think that that should be a form of military coercive leadership, but more diplomatic leadership. Many Americans still support American alliances. So there are key pillars that we can build on uh, in order to move forward. But, you know, the other thing I think, you know, considering what a Biden administration might do is perhaps the need to make major upfront investments. You, men, you mentioned R&D and basic science. I mean, these are investments that are important for the American economy that will benefit many Americans economically and in their day-to-day -day lives, but they're also crucial to America's long-term strength. And if there is the possibility of near-term bipartisan cooperation, which I think there is, to enact those types of priorities. Uh, once that money is in the system, it can't be reversed. So I think pursuing those sort of big swing policies on those areas where consensus does exist and to the extent that there's authority, even where there isn't bipartisan consensus, you know, that's a way to begin to lock in the types of policies that Mira and I advocate for in our book, even as partisan polarization is unlikely to abate anytime soon. Sure, sure. No, listen, one of the things I do like about the book, if you do have a handful of recommendations as to possible ways forward, right? I, I, I like the GI Bill for foreign diplomats too, or sort of the equivalent yeah. of something like that. Hey, go give your service back as a, a, a sort of helping in the foreign affairs domain. Um, and one so other thing I would say, just given your audience is, you know, another way that I think we can insulate against this polarization is really bringing in the private sector, right? Because the more that the private sector is aligned on this vision for what kind of world we all want to live in and operate within and how the United States should stand for that world internationally and pursue it, I think the more we can insulate from partisan polarization because private companies are exceptionally powerful. And if they adopt a vision of an open world as sort of being their guiding tenets as well, then they could advance those priorities regardless of who is in the White House. And I think that's also a really important piece of advancing this agenda, even in a highly polarized Washington. Well, it's interesting you say that, Rebecca. I've talked with several uh, of my friends and sort of co-collaborators on, uh, on some intellectual projects about the idea of corporate patriotism and sort of, can we get that sense of purpose? Yes, we can make profits, but can we achieve national objectives as part of Team America at that same time? So I uh, totally agree with what you're saying. So uh, a lot of questions and I'm realizing time is going quickly. <laughs> so I wanna ask, and I know you know from our prior conversations about my interest in this, but I wanna hear your thoughts on space. So um, the global commons logic you would think could and uh, might apply to space, that all of us should have access to it. Yet there's uh, heightened vulnerabilities in different ways from a military perspective, but also, you know, you heard that I had Susan Helms on this webinar series earlier. Uh, she talked about space junk and how, you know, one anti-satellite test on the part of the Chinese put 25% of the debris up there that makes it hazardous. And so there's this denial logic. And if you think of, sort of the first island chain as a denial in the physical space uh, here on planet Earth, you know, is there a Chinese possible rivalry in space from that perspective? Further, um, you know, I don't know if it's a possible coordination, competition, or collaboration domain, but there may in fact be the development of the moon, some space colonies, maybe some development further beyond. Uh, property rights have not been considered. Is territorial dynamics, sovereignty or non-sovereignty, who owns what? Is it a land grab? All of those dynamics. I really wanna hear your thoughts on those. 
Well, I absolutely would include space within the global commons, and we do in the book. I mean, this is an area where, yes, there is an outer space treaty. There is an international instrument that seeks to extend governance into outer space, but it was written in the 1960s and it hasn't been meaningfully updated since then. So especially with the explosion of commercial space exploration, as you said, with the fusion of, <coughs> excuse me, proliferation of many more satellites in space and with the growing reliance on space-based systems for military operations, for early warning, even for crucial command and control. I mean, there's no question that space is an undergoverned area and yep. a crucial project as we think about how to extend international order or intergalactic order, you might say, for the 21st century. So, yeah. you know, this is an area where I do think there is the possibility of great power cooperation. It might not be a sort of flashy, broadly scoped treaty like the Outer Space Treaty. It might not even be an update or extension of that treaty itself. But this is an area where I have some optimism that there is possibility for, for example, arms control frameworks. You know, space is often clustered within the category of destabilizing emerging technologies that could, you know, including have implications for nuclear stability between the U.S. and China or between the U.S., China and Russia. And as compared with other elements of emerging technology like cyber weapons, which are really difficult to verify and observe and therefore to apply any kind of arms control framework to, space is comparatively easier. You can readily observe space launches, for example. You can count the number of satellites that are in orbit at any given time. And so I do think that there is possibility for you know, moving towards agreements on pre-launch notifications, um, on you know, the possibility of banning anti-satellite tests of the kind that generate considerable space debris, uh, and so on. So I do think that this is an important area to continue to explore. And it really does have the possibility of being a bright spot for cooperation going forward, because, you know, neither China nor Russia nor the United States nor any other country wants to find itself in the position of being blinded during a crisis or the early stages of a war. And the ability to do that, or at least the ability to have that happen without the possibility of sort of understanding why it's happening um, is, is exceptionally dangerous. And there are other areas, like you said, like space debris, where, you know, space debris is not discriminate. It, if it hits your satellite, that's because you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so that's another area where there's the possibility of some consensus. And then the last thing I would say is, you know, from the U.S. perspective, regardless of the international cooperation piece, I mean, the development of these increasingly sophisticated satellites creates new forms of opportunity. I mean, one thing we talk about in the book is the way that intelligence actually needs to be reimagined to better incorporate commercial technologies, including commercial satellite technologies, because we have now an unprecedented ability to take high resolution images of so many portions of the world at any given time and soon maybe continue. And that is a tremendous intelligence asset, not only because it might free up some U.S. government assets to do other things, but also because it is more easily shareable. Because these images don't come from classified systems, it means that they're easier for the United States to publicize. It means that they're easier for the United States to share with countries that might not be immediate partners. So when you think about wanting to surveil Chinese activity in the South China Sea, well, the US doesn't have a robust intelligence sharing partnership with Vietnam, for example. But if we're using commercial technologies to do that imaging, it might actually be a lot easier to share those images and to shed light upon these sort of gray zone incidents that are happening, these gray zone challenges um, that China is doing or that Russia is doing or Iran or, or other countries. So there's tremendous possibility here. And I think you're exactly right to be asking this question and focusing on this area. Area. Yeah, interesting. Uh, no, that's nice to have a bright spot of optimism. <laughs> so here's a question that came in. I want to sort of mingle in uh, some of the questions that are coming in here, Rebecca, as well as some of the questions I've received. Uh, but this is one that says, how can the U.S. trust China to cooperate on areas of common interest when doing so opens the door for China to weaponize that relationship? Have we learned anything new from China's failure to alert the world and share data on SARS-CoV-2? 
uh, its refusal to shut international flights when it shut down domestic flights, its malice in cornering the global market for masks and PPE in the early months of the pandemic, or its brazen attempt to advance its diplomatic agenda at the expense of the free world? Well, that is a strongly worded question. I'm not sure I would agree with, with every element of it, but I think the spirit of it is right in the sense that if you'd asked me a year ago, what is a domain of transnational challenge that I would expect the United States and China to be able to work together on, I would have told you pandemics. It yep. seems an obvious area where there is shared interest in preventing mass death and disruption on the scale of what we've seen with COVID this year so far. But what COVID has also shown is that the sharpening rivalry between the US and China has the ability to, for lack of a better word, infect even those areas of cooperation where I do believe there are underlying mutual interests. So it certainly makes me more pessimistic about the possibility for future cooperation. I mean, in any of these cases, we don't have to trust or hope that China is going to do what we want them to do as a matter of international cooperation. We have to shape China's incentives so that they want to do what we want them to do and so that there is genuine overlapping interest in areas of cooperation. So there's no need to look at this through rose colored glasses. I mean, there are certain things like climate change where I think China has identified a core interest in trying to improve environmental standards in trying to you know, curb emissions and so on. So what we need to do is figure out where there really is mutual interest alignment and seek to capitalize on those areas. And in doing so, we need to be careful about how we structure those incentives. For example, what kind of bargains we're willing to put on the table to shape China's interests. There, I would say in the trade space, rather than hoping or wishing that China is going to adopt a different approach to state-owned enterprises, the United States needs to change the terms of global trade, either by pursuing a new SOE code of conduct at the WTO and sort of revitalizing that international body, or barring progress on that, which will admittedly be quite difficult because it's a consensus-based organization that does include China, to build new high standards, multilateral trade accords that bring in many countries in Asia and that change the incentives, the cost and benefit calculations that China has to make when determining how it's going to pursue economic and trade policies in light of the expectations being placed on it by many of its trade partners. So I think that's, you know, that's just one example. I think another example is BRI where it may be possible to actually nudge China in the direction of openness to engage with BRI and try to lift it to international development standards. And indeed, with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, something that the United States initially boycotted, but many of our allies decided to engage in, we've actually seen that something that initially seemed like it was going to be a development bank that operated you know, with Chinese characteristics has actually come more in line with international development standards. So I do think that there are areas where mutual interests can align, where we can push China in the direction that we would like to see them go. But that will all have to exist alongside a recognition that many elements of international life will remain quite competitive, that we shouldn't assume good intentions on the part of China, or we shouldn't assume that they're going to change their internal character. Uh, and so what an openness strategy seeks to do is leave open the possibility of cooperation in some areas on terms that are advantageous to the United States, but you know, to also be robust to the likelihood that that cooperation might not materialize. And so the United States needs to be prepared to defend its interests and to write new rules for 21st century international politics, even if China stridently opposes them and indeed is seeking to write contrary norms, laws, build new institutions at the same time. Yeah. Um... No, it's fascinating. There's a lot of stuff I could dig into on that uh, that response, Rebecca, but I want to, in the interest of time, keep going with other questions. So apologies for the somewhat disjointed nature of the, the questions, but this actually does build a little bit on the China thinking and the multilateral logic that you're talking about. Uh, what about India? Um, so India, for, you know, I can easily paint a picture I have economically of India being a country with tremendous, amazing potential that is highly unlikely to be realized. 
uh, because of internal bureaucratic developments, because of the lack of an educational infrastructure, because they missed the development, uh, an industrialization-based development window that's closing because of technological advancements and automated manufacturing. Uh, there's lots of reasons I can suggest India is a country with amazing potential that is unlikely to be realized. Um, in your book, you talk about India as a geostrategically valuable potential partner of the United States. Um, and so I'm going to combine two questions at the same time here. Um, previously, in a uh, prior webinar in the spring, I had Kishore Mabubani, uh, former president of the UN Security Council, uh, Singapore's ambassador to the United Nations, uh, talk with us a little bit about US-China relations and sort of how that remaps the world. He suggested and said, in the long run, Russia is on the same team, sort of say, we have aligned interests in sort of managing, containing, cooperating, verifying, and controlling China. And so there was sort of a, a set of strange bedfellows, if you will, uh, in the US and Russia, even though short-term competitive dynamics, longer-term similar interests. Um, so I wanna raise both Russia and India in that sort of logic of, and you can bring it in your logic of alliances and sort of cooperation versus competition, et cetera, of the openness strategy. But I wanna hear your thoughts on both Russia and India. So I think this the sort of essence of your question is, are these both swing states or hinge yeah. states that the United <laughs> States might be able to win over? Yeah. And there I would be much more optimistic about India, albeit cautiously so, than I would be about Russia. So here's why. India, as you said, has tremendous economic potential. It's expected to be one of the three largest global economies by 2050, um, although you know has many of the roadblocks that uh, you have mentioned. And India is not going to form an alliance with the United States. It has a long tradition of non-alignment and independence in its foreign policy. And so we shouldn't have outside expectations of what we can get from India as the United States and what we can expect from that relationship. But there is tremendous opportunity to nudge India, to win over India in the direction of openness. And the United States absolutely should try. As certainly everyone watching you know, knows, India and China share a border. It is a border that has become more hotly contested, especially in the Himalayas recently. And what we've seen as a result of that is India being comfortable with much more closely aligning with the United States, especially as a matter of security cooperation. That is something the United States absolutely wants to encourage and to foster because a US, India, and also a networked alignment between, between the US, India, and other American allies in the region like Australia and Japan is a tremendous advantage in trying to keep the Indo-Pacific region open for international military transit and for pushing back against the possibility that China might be able to achieve any kind of hegemonic dominance in its neighborhood. So that's really important. But at the same time, the fact that India is increasingly willing to work with the United States on security issues does not imply that they are going to align with us on every element of international order. And so we should expect that. And one example I like to cite there is the future of internet governance, because there are different visions for how the internet should be governed in the future. And the United States has traditionally uh, advocated for more of this multi-stakeholder model that doesn't just see sort of rigid government control and sovereignty over the internet, but really advocates for free and open information systems, including across borders. China, by contrast, has pioneered this norm of cyber sovereignty, this idea that states really should exert rigid control over their internet. And in that binary, I actually see India leaning increasingly towards the Chinese model of cyber sovereignty. We've seen longstanding internet shutdowns in India, especially in Kashmir over the past few years, which suggests that the Indian government actually wants to exert substantial control over their internet in a way that might not be compatible with an American vision. So this is what the future of international order is going to be. It's going to be states that align with American preferences on some issues, but not on other issues and a much more patchwork set of frameworks than the one to which we've been accustomed over the past 30 years as the United States has been unrivaled in its power and really trying to bring everyone into a single international order. The future is not going to be a single international order. It's going to be much more diverse and differentiated. Mm -hmm. Now, Russia 
is a different issue. So China and Russia are developing increasingly close relationships. They are cooperating on a number of military issues, economic issues, and so on. So the trajectory of Russia's alignment is certainly much more towards China than it is towards the United States. Now, that being said, you can imagine a number of long-term tensions that might develop between Russia and China. They share a border. They have a rocky history in terms of um, their you know, Cold War era relations and even fought a war with each other. Uh, in, during the Cold War. They have overlapping notions of their own spheres of influence. They are increasingly competitive as a matter of arms sales. And indeed, Russia sells arms to India, to Vietnam, to countries that are um, you know, increasingly at odds with China. So there are many seeds of dissent within that relationship. And something to watch, I think, over the next decade or so is how much those points of tension um, become really materialize and become an increasing uh, increasing friction in their relationship. I mean, certainly we know that Russia does not relish the idea of being a junior partner to China, but China is so obviously the more powerful country. So, you know, we've definitely seen some efforts on the part of the Trump administration to try to drive a wedge between Russia and China. We've also seen certain ways in which the Trump administration has lumped them together and maybe fostered their cooperation by identifying them both as great power competitors, sort of on equal footing. Uh, so I do think this is something to watch, but I, I don't really see a massive Russian realignment being likely in the near future. Uh, but if there were openings and if Russia stopped doing things like trying to meddle in our domestic political process, or, you know, annex, uh, annex Crimea, those sort of things that, you know, I think it would be much more likely that, that the United States would have the interest and, frankly, the domestic political space to have this conversation. Yeah. So a lot of questions here left, uh, Rebecca, on everything from social media to what's happening with the United Nations to what's happening with human rights logics around the world to uh, what, I mean, I can't even keep up with some of them, so we're not going to get to them all. Uh, but, you know, one area that is interesting that we haven't talked about, and uh, we'll give you a, a couple of minutes to answer this, and then I want to ask you some fun questions before we wrap up. Uh, what about Latin America? You know, um, Venezuela is a point of potential vulnerability for this sort of uh, Monroe Doctrine S Western Hemisphere. This is our world, kind of uh, don't be coming too close. Cuba was a flashpoint. Obviously, in the 60s, uh, could Venezuela turn into a flashpoint for foreign sort of, I don't want to call it colonialism, alliance building or what have you, um, that's a little too close to home for us? I'm not sure that Venezuela is going to become more of a flashpoint than it already is, but Latin America more broadly is exceptionally important. And when you think about the future of American foreign policy and American power not being primarily military in nature, which is one of the key recommendations of our book, then it opens up the necessity to focus so much more of our development energies and our diplomatic energies on the Western hemisphere. Because, you know, when you're thinking about the scope, for example, of China's Belt and Road Initiative, the United States certainly does not need to counter it symmetrically in every area. What it needs to do is prioritize those regions that are most vital to American interests and then dedicate our energies to ensure that there is market diversity and options so that countries in places like Latin America don't end up with Chinese infrastructure projects or Chinese 5G networks simply because they don't have any cost competitive alternatives. So I would say in those efforts, Latin America is going to be absolutely crucial the many of those countries are natural partners for the United States. Of course, Mexico, our southern neighbor, is absolutely vital. Yep. Uh, so I do think that needs to be a major area of focus, but I wouldn't frame it primarily in security terms. Okay, great. Uh, so a couple of fun questions before we wrap up. Uh, first, uh, and again, I've asked this question of the last 25 people I've hosted and, you know, and the feedback I've gotten from the audience is, we really love this question. <laughs> you know, Despite all the great content we've had, a lot of times people say, so what's your favorite book? So I don't think I have one favorite book, um, but one, let me say the most recent book that I read, uh, which is by a friend of mine, Stephen Wertheim, it's called Tomorrow the World. And it's a really interesting history um, of 
how the United States basically decided that it wanted to pursue global supremacy uh, during the during sort of World War II and how that decision was taken. And he goes deep into the archives and sort of unpacks how the United States began to imagine itself as a global power as World War II was still ongoing and in many ways laid the foundation for much of what we've seen in the decades hence. And that book just came out. Uh, he would be a great guest for you as well. Okay, perfect. That's a good suggestion. Um, how about your favorite movie or miniseries? Again, without without playing favorites, I mean, perhaps my all-time favorite movie, I would say, is Almost Famous, the, the Cameron Crowe movie, um, okay. yep. which is quite excellent. But one series I really enjoyed recently was Mrs. America, which in which uh, Kate Blanchett plays Phyllis Schlafly. And it's okay. a fascinating portrait of um, America during the sort of push for the Equal Rights Amendment and also uh, yeah. during the rise of Reagan Republicanism. And she's a really fascinating character. And Kate Blanchett is just a tremendous actor. Oh, fun. Good. Rebecca, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for uh, writing the book. Uh, I think it's a very thought-provoking read and I highly recommend everyone read it. Uh, again, it's a, a short, quick read with lots of some uh, really good ideas that I think are worthy of consideration. Um, and most importantly, Rebecca, thank you for being a grand strategist. I think the world needs more of us <laughs> to think bigger, broader, wider, um, and you know, to combat that siloization problem that I think has become so, uh, so prevalent. So uh, again, thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you for having me. It's really been an honor to be in conversation with you. These are so many great questions and I look forward to continuing the discussion into the future. Great. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikram Mancharamani. As a reminder, the video replay of today's episode is available at www.mansharamani.com. Finally, if you've not already done so, we encourage you to subscribe to the Think for Yourself podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify. Thank you.